0: Center for Community Education at Bicultural Hebrew Academy of Connecticut. I'm delighted to welcome you to our pre-Tisha B'Av class, which will be given by our new Judaic Studies principal and new resident to Stanford, Rabbi Joshua Rosenfeld. Uh, his topic tonight will be Kamtsa and Bar Kamsa, an unfamiliar look at a familiar story. Uh, we're very fortunate to host Rabbi Rosenfeld for this program. He has an engaging personality. He's an extremely thoughtful educator, and his insights about the famous uh, Kamsa and Bar Kamsa story will certainly be enlightening. Prior to his arrival in Stanford and his working at Bicultural, Rabbi Rosenfeld uh, was the middle, middle school principal at Manhattan Day School and the associate rabbi at Lincoln Square Synagogue in New York City. Rabbi Rosenfeld studied for two years at Yeshivat Hakotel. He served in the IDF in the 605th Combat Engineers. As a lone soldier through the Second Lebanon War, he received a bachelor's degree with honors in English Lit from YU, where he was a Wolf family scholar. He holds a master's degree from the Israeli Graduate School, and he obtained semicha from the Rabbi Isaac El-Hanan Theological Seminary at YU. Uh, Just a little bit of a commercial for the CCE, the Center for Community Education, is now over a year old, uh, and it's an important initiative of the Bicultural Hebrew Academy of Connecticut that aims to inspire thoughtful conversation related to the spectrum of Jewish issues. Um, In September, we're very excited to announce that we will be publishing the very first edition of Panim, an academic journal which will include articles by more than a dozen Jewish educators. Um, and we're also planning to organize both live and Zoom Shi'rim after the Chagim for our community members here in Stanford and beyond. And if you're interested in getting more involved in this effort, uh, please contact me. Also just um, a note in, uh, on the program. If you do have a question, please type it into the chat. It will go to Rabbi Rosenfeld. He will uh, view it and answer any questions after the program. Uh, It's my great pleasure to introduce Rabbi Joshua Rosenfeld.
1: Thanks so much uh, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, Thank you all for coming. Uh, And uh, really a big thanks goes to, uh, to Michael Feldstein, and his helming of the CC, along with uh, Rabbi Trencher for all of his uh, help really with everything. Uh, my acclimating to the community and the school, uh, but also in uh, ensuring that all technical aspects of these classes uh, go well. I can't uh, wait to uh, be able to learn with people in person, God willing, uh, be a be uh, a lot nicer, I think. And um, just, uh, I also want to dedicate, if I may, uh, tonight's uh, Torah learning, um, that which I can help to uh, to the memory of my grandfather, my Zaidi, Harav Yisra, and Harav Naftali. I'm named after my grandfather's father. My grandfather was a, a principal of North Shore Hebrew Academy for about uh, two decades. Um, and um, and uh, it was uh, his life and my sabba, who was also a principal, that I have uh, sought to emulate in my own. And his uh, eighth yard site was yesterday. I miss him, uh, miss him dearly, actually. Um, This is the second time that I've had a chance to learn with you and it's my first as an official Stanford resident. And uh, I, do, uh, I do think it's um, uh, worth saying and pointing out that after having spent uh, two Shabbos here uh, and having met people, having met the rabbis of both the young Israel and the good of Shalom, um, that uh, we made the right choice uh, for my family and I. We could already feel it. Uh, people here, just I see a number of you uh, on the boxes and the tiles and the Zoom. Uh, Thank you to everybody who's been so welcoming, so kind, um, and uh, allowing the the transition from city life to suburban life uh, be all the more sweet. Um, So let's get right into it. Uh, I've taught this particular story before on Tisha B'Av itself, as it's one of the main and perhaps the best known of the section of Agadot of rabbinic stories and legends uh, that we call as a unit the Agadot HaKhorban, the legends and stories of the Temple's destruction, and the the vast majority of them, the bulk of these Agadot appear in in Mesechet Gitin. Uh, in uh, they start on Daf Nun Hay on folio fifty five A, and they continue, and that's uh, actually really only the uh, the only part of the Talmud that you're actually really allowed to study on Tishabav. we try and limit our Torah scholarship on Tishah itself to matters appertaining to the destruction, pertaining to the Khorban. We're not supposed to learn things uh, of ordinary Talmudic fare because learning is supposed to make us happy, and um, and I think it's uh, it's 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 important uh, to learn these agadot because it's. Um, it's really talking about the lead up to Tishabav. It's really talking about how we prepare for Tishabav. Many of these Agadot are not concerned with the actual destruction itself, although to be sure, there are many rabbinic stories that focus on on the most macabre, grotesque aspects of the destruction itself. But the, I think the bulk of the stories that the rabbis want to tell about the korban is about the lead up, is about the the causes, about what happened that brought us to a state of a destroyed temple, twice, exile, and then diaspora, and dispersion? And it's in the days leading up to Tisha B'av that I think that these agadot, that these stories have their most profound effect when we study them. So... In speaking about the genesis of the destruction of the temple, the story of Kams and Bar Kamsa is not only the most famous of these stories, but I would have heard that it's perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Gemara in Toto of any kind. And uh, thus, I think it's really uh, apropos for us to be learning it tonight as we prepare for, unfortunately, what seems to be yet another Tisha so we're going to start with the statement of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan, it's important to understand, is, a, is going to be uh, the rabbi, one of the main, what we call the Mara Da'ara of Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Yochanan is one of the rabbis that stayed in the land of Israel after the destruction, um, a student eventually of Yavne, the yeshiva that was saved from the destruction by Rabbi Yochanan Medzakai. It's a story for another time, uh, an amazing story in its own right. And Rabbi Yochanan has the following to say. So I'm going to uh, share my screen with you. I actually uh, made a source sheet for us, and uh, and here we go. Can uh, can can somebody just give a, a thumbs up that you could see my screen? It's always hard on Zoom to know if it's actually working. Okay, Jody, I saw you. Shai, I saw you. Thanks, guys. You're the first two on my screen. Um, so here's the text of the of of that the Gemara opens with, and when the Gemara offers a preamble to a unit of stories, we could call that a p'tichasa. That is an opener. It's uh it's going to frame uh, the unit of stories that we have afterwards. Amr Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, "My dictiv. What is the meaning of the following verse? Ashrei adam um Happy is the man who fears always, who is in constant fear." But who hardens his heart shall fall into mischief. So, what's the meaning of that verse? Rabbi Yochanan uses that verse as a stepping stone to say to us that Yerushalayim. because of Kamsa and Bar because of the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, Yerushalayim was destroyed. Now, we already know right at the outset that it's not only Kamsa and Bar that caused the destruction of the temple, because Right after this, Rabbi Yochanan introduces what will be the second story, which is that on account of a chicken, a separate story for another time, a har of Tormalka, the great city of Turmalka, was destroyed. So, Kamsa and Bar Kamsa is one of the units of stories of a small event, a small story that, through a kind of butterfly effect. Ended up being responsible for the destruction of the temple. Now, I want to dwell for a moment on this verse, which we're going to come back to. Mishle, the verses in Proverbs are notoriously difficult to fully understand because they contain so much wisdom for us, so much understanding that we need to plumb the depths of these words. But what does it mean to be mefached, Tamir? I want you to ask yourselves. And I do want to remind you, even though Zoom isn't so conducive to a back and forth, which I love so much about teaching, um, certainly we are going to spend time, hopefully, in Mir Hashem at the end of the year to take people's questions. And, uh, and, and, and I want to give a few prompts throughout the year uh, for you to think about. Hopefully we'll be able to get to a few of them. And if not, um Hashem. We have a number of years of good learning ahead of us, God willing. So, I want you to think about what it might mean that when we're introducing these stories of a small event that generates this massive destruction and the end of an era for the Jewish people, I want you to ask yourself what the purpose of using the verse Ashrei Adam, praiseworthy is the man who is Mepached Tamid, who is in constant fear. Now you might even sharpen that question by asking yourself, isn't it not really a Jewish value to be in constant fear? Shouldn't you really uh, not be in fear? Didn't Rabbi Nachman, for example, tell us that, you know, the whole world is a narrow bridge and the main thing is not to fear at all? So what exactly are we being told over here? And what exactly is the connection of that to the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa? So I'm going to stop sharing. And um, I wish we had more time for it, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the story to you uh, in in a kind of paraphrase. And you might be familiar with the story because the truth is, is that the story is... Uh, taught to us as, as, as little kids um, and it's, it's taught with a very specific message in mind and I think that that message is be nice to other people and don't kick them out of your parties when they come, especially when they offer to pay for everything. But before we do that, and I know that I'm offering a number of preambles, but this is really, when you want to really understand a Gemara, when you really want to understand the rabbinic or a Jewish source, it's important to give it its due. And it's important to understand the background and the context as, as much as possible. So before we proceed to the story itself, it's worth noting and recalling a, a well-known rabbinic statement that does identify the chief sins through which we had the destruction of the temples. So the first temple, the Talmud says, and this is, comes from the Gemara in Yuma, um, and I think it's uh, folio nine A. The Gemara in Yuma tells us that the reason that the first temple was destroyed was because there was total corruption. People were complete failures. They were violating the three big sins of Odazara. They were engaged in pagan idolatry. Uh, They were engaged in sexual immorality. And there was murder. Uh, It was rampant in that society. The temple was destroyed. Now, in the second temple, the Gemara says something rather shocking. You may have heard that the second temple was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam which means baseless hatred, as it's usually translated. The truth is is that most hatred is baseless. It's very rare to find a justified hatred, um, and we should probably be engaged more in baseless love. That's a tougher thing to do. But we say that the Second Temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of baseless hatred. Now, the Gemara actually doesn't just say that. The Gemara says something rather jarring. It says that in the Second Temple, and imagine for yourself a similar society, and I'm starting already to show you my cards a little bit about where we might be going with all this. The Gemara says, Mikdash Shani in the second temple. Shahayu oskim b'torah. They were very learned. They had many people that studied, that went to Yomi, that went to Shiurim, that came to CCE lectures. There was a lot of Torah. There was mitzvahs. People were engaged in, in mitzvah, scrupulous mitzvah performance. Gemilas chassadim. People even had all kinds of gemachs. They, they would set up to give to the needy and they would take care of people that were needy. However, however, however. Mipnei macharav? So, if it was so good, if people were doing all the right things, why was it destroyed? Mipnei shahaysa bo Because when you would pull away the veneer of that society with all these external things and with all the goodness on the outside with the Torah, with the gemil's Chassadim, with the mitzvah observance, with all that stuff, people hated one another. It was a culture of cliques and of people deciding this one's an enemy, this one's a friend, this one I talk to, this one I don't talk to. And this was the way that people functioned. And because it had sinat chinam, despite having all those other good things, because it had baseless hatred and enmity between people, so the society was rotten. And that was the cause of the destruction of the temple. The rabbis actually take this to a, a very um, shocking extreme. They say, this teaches us, you're looking for one of these kind of sources, this teaches us that that sin at chinam, that that kind of interpersonal sin is considered uh, the same on par with the three big ones. That, for, that it was enough to destroy a temple. It was enough to ruin a society. It was enough to cause the destruction. Watch out for this kind of, even if you think that you're doing everything God wants, if you're not good with other people, if you're not treating them the right way, if you have hatred in your heart for fellow Jews, then everything is rotten. That's what the Gemara is trying to teach us over there. So that's the real cause of the destruction. So the, the last, I'm going to paraphrase the story because in the interest of time, and I do want to make sure um, that, that the few points that I want to share tonight do come out. So here's the story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa. For an upcoming party, a wealthy man sent his servant to deliver an invitation to his friend, a man named Kamsa. However, the servant mistakes the recipient as Bar Kamsa, who was an enemy of the wealthy man. Upon seeing the hated Bar Kamsa at his party, the host ordered him to leave, get out. Bar Kamsa, attempting to save face, three times offers to make peace with his host. First, he offers to pay For all the food he eats. And then when he's rebuffed, the host says, no, I'm not taking anything from you. So he says, I'll pay for half the expenses of the party. He's driving a hard deal. And the host says, nope. And then he says, okay, fine. Don't embarrass me. I'm going to pay for the entire thing. I'll pay for your whole party. I don't care. Just let me stay. Don't embarrass me. Don't kick me out. And the host, of course, says sorry, no. He doesn't even say sorry. I added that. He says, no way. Finally, the host has bar kamsa, forcibly removed and the Gemara is careful to note the presence of rabbis that were present and did not protest what was going on in front of them. They lacked the courage to protest the shameful actions of this host. Now, the story continues, humiliated, Bar vows revenge. He visits the Roman Caesar, who controlled the region, and tells him, by the way, the Jews are inciting to revolt against the Roman Empire. Achelbe Kurza, the Gemara says. He, he, he resorts to a very disgusting act, I think we could all agree. He informs falsely on the Jewish people. And the Caesar, unsure of whether or not to believe this individual, he take that seriously, so he says, okay, let's formulate a test. The test is, Bar Kamsa suggests, you're going to send a sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem, a peace offering, and I'll take it along the way. Now, I should say parenthetically that, believe it or not, in the times of the temple, there were a, a whole swath of sacrifices that were indeed allowed to be offered by Jew and non-Jew alike at the temple. It was open for all these things. So he sends the animal along with Bar Kamsa to the temple, and on the way, Bar Kamsa purposefully wounds the animal in such a way that would disqualify it. Now, Bar Kamsa knows what he's doing. He would disqualify the animal as a Jewish sacrifice, but not as a Roman sacrifice. And the Gemara says that there's a dispute. It, he, he either gave it like a nick on its eye, or somewhere on its lip, wherever it was. It was a wound that when you bring it to the base of as a Jew, so that would not be accepted as a karban. But the Romans and their temples, they didn't think that this was a, a wound or anything that would be a disqualifying factor. That's act two. Now we come to act three. Barkhams arrives at the temple. Upon seeing the disfigured animal, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin present at the temple have to make a decision. How do we respond to this delicate situation? Some advocate dispensing with the law and offering the animal anyway to avoid any issues. Now this plan is vetoed by a rabbi who seems to be the most important rabbi on the scene, a rabbi named Zechariah ben Avkolos. And he fears that people will begin to think it's okay to bring blemished animals to the temple to be sacrificed. Then they suggest putting Bar Kamsa to death to prove that he's at fault. And again, Rav Schayev and Avkulos refuses. He seems to be the person who's running the show over there because this isn't the mandated penalty for intentionally bringing a disqualified offering at the temple. And now we have what is the, what I would say, the coda to this terrible story. Okay, so that's the story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa. Here's the coda of the story. The coda of the story is the following. Another shocking rabbinic statement. Amar of Yohanan. Rav Yohanan says, An v'sanusu shal rabbi Zechariah ben avkula sechrives b'teinu v'sarfa es heichaleinu Sanu Rabbi Yochanan, the same one who told us about the Pasuk, Adam tamid, He says it is the excessive humility of Rav Zechariah ben Avkulas that destroyed our temple, burned our sanctuary, and exiled us from our land. Now, I, I didn't think I necessarily would talk about it, but I just want to mention or, or show you something really cool that I, I discovered in preparation for this year. Can I, I, Let's take a little... Let's take a little, uh, a little bit of a detour for a second. What exactly is the postscript to this story? So, the postscript to the story, after this coda, there is a postscript. And the postscript is the following I'm going to take you to Gittin 56, Daphnun Vav Ahmed Aleph. And it says the following The Caesar at the time was a ruler by the name of Nero. Neron. You've probably heard of Nero, his teacher was Seneca the Elder who we have uh, a number of books, one of the Stoic philosophers. And Nero uh, is a really fascinating historical figure. Uh, there's, uh, there, It turns out that there's a, a lot of his life that's shrouded in mystery. There, there are some historians that think that he was the first Caesar who committed suicide, but the Talmud has a completely different take on it. Caesar, having seen that uh, Bar says right, that the Jews didn't accept that sacrifice, So Caesar is still unsure of whether or not he's going to be the one who sacks the temple, who who destroys Jerusalem. So he starts to go on his path. He fires one arrow to the east, another arrow to the west, another arrow to the north, and another to the south. And all of these arrows end up falling in the direction of Jerusalem. And Nero thinks that this is indeed a sign that God wants him to destroy the temple, but Nero isn't satisfied yet. Amr Leil Yanuka, as he's still on his way, this Caesar, this Roman Caesar, as he's still on his way, he encounters a Jewish child, and he does something that many of the rabbis of the Talmud would do. He says, What are you learning? Right? Something that I'm going to encourage parents throughout the year to get involved with their kids' education and to show interest and say, hey, what did you learn this week? What did you learn in the Parsha? What did you learn in Gemara class? What did you learn in Mishnah? To, to, this was a common practice of the rabbis to see where a Jewish child was holding, as they say in their learning. So now the Caesar asks this Jewish child, and the Jewish child quotes a very ominous Pasuk. And the Pasuk says, The Pasuk is a verse that comes from Yechezkel foretelling the destruction of the temple. And God says, I've given over to Edom, who is representative of Rome. I've given over to them the ability to destroy the temple. Now Nero is still not satisfied. He says, "Hold on one second." He says, "Wait up! God is telling me that through the sign of the arrows and through this child that I've met, that I'm going to be the one who's going to destroy the temple." He says, "I don't want to be that person because I know that eventually, just like the, the pharaohs of history, I'm going to eventually have my come up in salsa. I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to be a part of that." So what does Nero do? He runs away and converts to Judaism, according to the rabbis. And it's his successor, Vespasian, who ends up becoming the one who starts to lay siege to Jerusalem and eventually destroys it. It's Vespasian who's the one who does so. Nero, according to the rabbis of the Gemara, converts to Judaism. Can you imagine such a thing? So I was curious about Whether or not not this was historically accurate, this rabbinic take is. And sure enough, when you look at the end of Nero in all of the histories, there is tremendous, tremendous disagreement as to what exactly was the downfall of Nero. What exactly happened to Nero? In fact, there was an entire movement in ancient Rome called, I'm going to forget the name, Nero Nero Recidivindum that there was a belief that Nero was going to come back to life. And some say he killed himself, some say he had his attendant kill him, some say he ran away. But whatever it is, is that the end of Nero seems to be shrouded in mystery. And I might just suggest, and we're going to close this parenthesis in a second, you may just suggest that if there's anything that Roman historians would want to hide and would want to obscure, it would be the fact that there would be a Roman Caesar that would have converted to Judaism rather than destroy its temple. That's that's an avenue that I think is worthy of of looking at. It may or may not be true, but we do say, in the Talmud at least, that Nero's descendant was none other than Rabbi Meir. The great Rabbi Meir was the descendant of Nero. So that's, that's a thread that we can revisit in some other time. But it's something that I think is worth uh, looking at as a postscript. So it was Vespasian. But we see a contradiction between two statements of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan in the beginning said, it was because of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa that Jerusalem was destroyed. And then at the end he says, well, it was because of the humility of Rav Schayi ben Avkulas. So the question that we need to be asking ourselves after this story is the following. The simple question is, well, who is responsible for the destruction of the temple? It's a contradiction over here. Who's, who's the bad guy in this story? Who's the person that we can lay blame for the destruction of the temple at their feet? And the second is what exactly is this story coming to teach us? The rabbis aren't just giving us a recounting or a history You can leave that up to other people to give us a history of the destruction, but the rabbis are engaged in a didactic process as well. They're trying to teach us something. They're trying to express to us an idea, and this is something that I believe is very true, is that when you study Gemara, when you look at these stories, especially with mature eyes, it might be a story that you've learned as a child, and now you're coming back as an adult to study. When you come back to them with open eyes and read it again, in a slow way, in a deliberate way. So you start to recognize that the rabbis, every single word is weighed in gold. Every single word and story is pregnant with meaning that is, is, is so incredibly easy to transpose onto our own time and onto our own life experience. We're not just reading about something that happens in the first century uh, in Judea, but reading about something that is applicable to us, Stanford or wherever you might be coming in from, in 2021, in any Jewish community, the reason the rabbis commit these stories and the reason that it's redacted in such a way is because it's meant to teach us a lesson for our day and age, even when our own actions might not necessarily result in the destruction of the temple because we don't have one. So I want to address the first question. And the first question is, is who's responsible? Now, I'd ask you guys to sound off in the chat if you'd like, because usually you get the... The basic response, and this is the re- this is, I think, the way I was taught this story as a child. And the basic response is that the bad guy in the story is none other than the host. It's undeniably ugly what he does to to this to this guest. It seems that Bar Kamsa wants to make amends. In fact, his hatred is so strong that he basically gives up full payment. Right? It's it's not just sinat chinam. It, it it's Sina with a lot of money at stake. He gives up the price of his entire party just to, just to make sure that he sticks it to Bar Kamsa, Just to make sure that he shows Bar Kamsa, you are not welcome here. Bal the Gemara calls it. The Gemara, the Gemara uses like this very oblique term. It doesn't say it was his enemy. It says a person that was in a fight with him, in a state of enmity. The Gemara seems to want to make clear that the society functioned in a way that there wasn't even any reason for this. We don't even know who these people were. Kampse and Bar Kampse might very well be pseudonyms. We don't even know. We don't have records of any such people, even though in uh, Joseph- Flavius Josephus' uh, own personal memoirs, we have a reference to wealthy individual with a name that's similar, but we really don't know who they are. It could be a placeholder for a name. It wants to express to us that, that there were people that, that simply hated others And nothing could change their mind about it. Bar Kamsa seems to want to make amends. So definitely the host is the bad guy. And since the host is the bad guy, the story is coming to teach us, don't, uh, you know, practice hachnasat orchim. Don't kick people out of your house and certainly don't embarrass them in public. So then the next stage, as you get a little bit older, you learn that the bad guy in the story is actually, and I just saw this in the comments from the Bernstein family, and you're right that it's the rabbis the rabbis are sitting there they're witnessing this terrible event and they choose to remain quiet i was always uh i was always puzzled like what exactly could we say putting ourselves in the mindset of the rabbis why would they not say something when it's so obvious to to a child who reads the story why would they not say anything when when this terrible scene unfolds in front of them. I, I want to show you one of the books, one of the spharam that I've been using in preparation. Uh, it comes from the Rosh Hashiva of Otniel of Benny Kalmanson. He has a wonderful sefer. I always like to do show and tell, although most of my books are uh, still in boxes. But uh, he, he has a book on Agadot HaKurban called Alma of Haaretz Iunim Ba'agadot HaKurban. And he says the following thing. He says, of course we can understand why the rabbis were quiet. Of course we could put ourselves in their mindset. The rabbis are there at the party of a wealthy, powerful individual. They're being wined and dined, and they see this ugly scene. Maybe some of them even turn their eyes away from it, and they abdicate responsibility. But what's the thought process that goes through our minds? Ruf Kalmanson says that they probably said, this must be beyond us. There must be a backstory here. There must be a reason that Bar Kams is being treated like this. It's something that we don't know better to not get involved. Better to better to be mit Alem, to, to, turn, to turn our eyes, to avert our eyes from this and tonight, not to make a stink, not to make a scene. There must be a good reason for this. How often, uh, in, in hopefully far less acute ways, how often do we see something, all of us, and we say, I'm not going to be the one who speaks? Somebody else will speak up. In psychology, we call this the diffusion of responsibility. Uh, for a while, this was part of the legend of Kitty Genovese. Remember that? It uh, turned out to not exactly be so true. But the responsibility is the psychological effect that says somebody else is going to take care of it or I-, I could abdicate responsibility here because I never really had to assume responsibility in the first place. So that's the more mature reading of this. That's the more mature way of saying it's the rabbis who are at fault. But that's not enough. That also doesn't come together with the pasuk that we started off with. The next stage, I think, starts to say, it's not the host, it's not the rabbis, it's not even and what he does with the carbon, But it's everybody. It's everybody. And that's why we quoted the verse Ashrei Adam mefachei tamid. praiseworthy is a person who's always fearful. You know what always fearful means in this context? It means that we know where we have to live with the recognition that everything that we do, especially in the interpersonal realm, reverberates in ways that we cannot control, in ways that we can't really foresee what our actions are going to lead to down the line. There used to be a movie I saw a long, long time ago called The Butterfly Effect. It was like uh, one of these uh, teenager movies. And The Butterfly Effect was you know, based on this idea I don't know if it's even a a real idea, but this concept uh, that a butterfly could flap its wings in one side of the world, and that's going to generate a chain of events that could lead to a hurricane, God forbid, on the other end of the world. Butterfly effect. The movie had nothing to do with that, except for small things that change and, and reverberate in much larger ways. But we see in the stories over here something so small, a bad interaction at a party. A chicken and Torah Malka, something small that spirals and sets off a series of unfortunate events, a chain of events that leads to world-changing epochal events like the destruction of the temple. So when we read the story like that, of Mepachet Tamid, that before acting I need to think, I need to be fearful of the consequences of my actions, now we understand what Rabbi Yochanan was doing by quoting that Pasek. And we understand the end of it. If you harden your heart, if you numb yourself to the consequences of your actions, so you're going to eventually find yourself in a place where the unintended consequences of your actions can come back to bite you. And that seems to be one of the main messages of these Agadot HaKurban, is less so about the destruction of the temple and more about us considering the way that we function in the world, the way that we act especially in the interpersonal realm, how we treat other people and, and what that does and what that says about us and what that, how that impacts our status and our standing in the community and, and what could potentially happen from that. I, I, look, I've been a, a pulpit rabbi before I came here for 10 years. There are so many cases if somebody said something or an omission or uh, somebody forgot to do something and that led to feuds, that led to situations that got out of people's control. One misunderstanding leads to another and it takes so much time to just peel that off and to, to mend that situation. Perhaps that's how you get to a society where the rabbis can be sitting at, a, at, at this party and not say anything because who knows? Better for me to sit back, better for me to not get involved than to, uh, than to say something. That's the kind of mindset that leads to a destruction. Furthermore, we know that the Talmud gives all sorts of reasons and says Sinat Chinam above all. But you should notice that in the story, in the Talmud, Sinat Chinam is never even mentioned in the context of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. The story is presented as it is, and in the end, blame is laid at the feet of Scharia ben Avkulas. Now let's focus on Scharia bin Avkulas for a second. Scharia ben Avkulas, Avkulas is a unique figure because he seems to have so much importance in this particular Gemara. He seems to be the person who's deciding how everything goes in the Beit HaMikdash. You know how many times Chayyar bin Avkulis is mentioned in the in the Mishnah and in the Talmud? Anybody know how many times he's mentioned? Seemingly an important figure. Twice. Twice. He's mentioned in the Mishnah and Shabbos as well. And by the way, when he's quoted in that Mishnah and Shabbos, which is about a totally separate concept, it's about clearing your table from, from nuts after you've eaten them. The Mishnah is sure to add on over there. And by the way, because of Sechayi of Avkulas, the temple was destroyed. <laughs> this is the guy. Sechayi ibn Avkulas should be somebody, at least seeming to the power that he has in this particular Gemara, should be somebody that's mentioned constantly. We should hear about him all the time. And yet we see nothing of Sechayi ibn Avkulas. And every time he's mentioned, we point to him and we gesture and we say, this is the guy. Why does he get such a bad rap? Why is blame laid at the end of the story in his feet by Rav Yochanan? And then again in the Mishnah. I think because Schayr of Avkulis is emblematic of all of those societal ills that we just described before. Of the lack of care, of the lack of pachad, of the lack of fear, of the lack of, of, of circumspection when dealing with other people and their feelings and interacting with them. Schayr of Avkulis obviously had a lot of power. And this is A fourth stage of understanding the breakdown in this story. Schaivin of Kulas could have done a number of things over here, and here we have an indictment wholesale of rabbinic authority. And I want to say parenthetically, it's it's quite unbelievable. I talked about reading Gemara in a mature way and what it yields, the joy of Torah learning that it yields for us. You would think that this would be the kind of a story that rabbis would want to maybe suppress they wouldn't necessarily want people to hear about how they messed up so badly in this particular instance how they were responsible for the destruction how they ended up causing how they sat down as bystanders while this travesty was occurring you might think that that's the case except the talmud as it does in many many other places says no here's the facts here's the story as it occurred here we are warts and also that you later Jewish generations might learn, might understand that we might take responsibility. What an unbelievable thing. So back to Zechayi and Avkula. It's an indictment wholesale of rabbinic authority. Because you would think that if there was any time that it would be good to bend the rules of halacha a little bit, it might be when the wrath of the Caesar is at stake. Especially when it comes for an Aveira, offering this kind of a sacrifice, that honestly wouldn't necessarily incur a death penalty. It's not one of the big three. This would have been prime time for a little bit of rabbinic creativity, for a little bit of boldness, for a little bit of bravery to say, okay, we'll accept this karban. Shlom alchus. Who knows what the Caesar might do? Instead, we find Zechariah of Avkulas doing something that in modern Hebrew, right, we used to have this phrase in the army, we'd say, to be Lachtin rosh. Rosh Katan. You guys know what Rosh Katan means? Rosh Katan means, I see something happening. I see that something needs to be done. It doesn't involve me. Same kind of mindset that the rabbis had at the meal before. Rosh Katan means, I'm not going to get involved. Zechariah of Kula says, I'm just going to focus on the halacha. I'm just going to focus on what's before me, the particular case. And I'm not going to take a look at the global context. It's what we might call a, a very exilic view of halacha, a very narrow view of, of halacha that doesn't take into account the ramifications that might be borne by those rabbinic decisions. Schayerib of Avkula should have been Magdilros. He should have been Rosh Gadol over here and said, This is a time where bold action needs to be taken. We need to either take this carbon, or we need to do away with this Barkamsa fellow. He does neither. That's why we see this language of Anvisanuso. Anava is a positive thing, Anava is a good thing. Humility is the most laudable of traits. And Tzchayr ben Avkula certainly was a humble man. The rabbis attest to it. In fact, to my knowledge, the only other place in the Talmud that we see this kind of appellation, Anvesanuso, you know who we use that to refer to? God. The Gemara says, the Talmud tells us elsewhere, gadluso, any place you find the greatness of God, there too you find God's as if to say God's modesty, God's humility. What an unbelievable trait. The trait of Moshe Rabbeinu, Schari ibn Avkula, has got it. And yet when it's misapplied, when it's engaged improperly, like this case over here, disaster ensues. Schari ibn Avkula shows us what we would call a degree of cowardice. It should have been the time to do something. And it feels scary for me to even talk about a rabbinic figure in this way, save for the fact that, that this is exactly what the Gemara, what Rabbi Yochanan is telling us in their own harsh language. Schayr of Kulis is probably in Gan Eden knowing, knowing that he's serving as an important example for Jewish people, for time, for everybody, for time immemorial to be used as an example of when not to engage in humility, when to move beyond that, and when to exercise your authority, and when not to be maktin rosh. Taken all together, all of these things from the small, from the actions of the host, from the way that the host conducted himself, to the failures of leadership of Zechari Of Kul is taken together, all of these events seem to tell us that it wasn't really the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa that caused the destruction of the Temple. It wasn't even just Sinas Khinam that caused the destruction of the Temple. Like anything else that happens in real life, like any other real-life situation Big events happened because of a myriad number of small events that catalyzed them and, and put them onto a path that inexorably leads to, in our case, the destruction of the temple. But it was the sinas khina. it was the baseless hatred of the host for Bar Kamsa. It was all of these things that created a climate in which the Romans could march in and destroy the temple because there was no unity, because there was no people really left to speak of. Sinat Chinam wasn't the root cause. It was the root enabler of the destruction. A society that has Sinat Chinam, a society that is permeated with these kind of relationships of people is also going to be a society where the rabbis or where the authority figures are going to be fearful of stepping up when need be. It's going to be a society where when action, when decisive action needs to be taken, the leaders are going to step aside because who knows what people might say. Who knows? Mayagidu? What, what kind of enmity might I? Maybe, maybe the rabbis were afraid of what, what kind of sinat might happen to them. Maybe they wouldn't have been invited or kicked out of the next party thrown in Yerushalayim. This kind of a society is a society where all the conditions have been satisfied to take away a temple that God says elsewhere in these agadot, hachorban, and Gitin, God says that it wasn't even a temple anymore. It was just sticks and stones. It was supposed to be a temple. It was supposed to be an edifice, but it was it was devoid of all meaning because of people so divided. And remember, of people that were learning Torah, of people that were engaged in gemilut Sadim, of people that were engaged in scrupulous performance of the mitzvah. They had all those things. They probably thought they were okay too. They probably thought that they were doing fine. They probably thought, yeah, we we hear from time to time, Stories like this, you know, maybe, you know, and a WhatsApp comes our way, so do you hear about that? Or we see something in the newspaper, or, you know, some ugly scene, or we see it a, a clip, and we say, okay, but we're doing okay. This agadah, this story comes to disabuse us of the notion that that is okay, that that is something that should be countenanced. Because it says that it is emblematic of deeper, pervasive societal ills that allow for destruction to take place. I like catalyzed destruction. So I think it's fair to say that we have no one culprit, that we have no one person that we could lay the blame on. And that maybe is the reason that Rabbi Yochanan contradicts himself. Like Walt Whitman, very well, I contradict myself. There are a multitude of reasons for the destruction of the temple. But it also serves to bear that wherever you looked in the society of Pre destruction, pre destruction. Second temple. Wherever you looked, you found from the very top rung to the very bottom rung, you found corruption, both moral and of leadership, that allowed for the temple to be destroyed. Now, I think the lessons for us are, 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 are go without saying. I think at the very lowest level, that we should practice at orchin. The Maharal, in his comments on this, says that it's not for naught that the rabbis told us that the act. Of achnasat orchim, the act of of bringing people into your home, the act of doing that, especially when they're new. I see over here, I see uh, the Pearl family, they were our host. On the first week, the Gemara, the Talmud tells us that that is it is like you're accepting God into your home. It's not a small act, it should be looked at as a huge act, something tremendous. That even that small thing should be seen as a big deal. It's not trivial to bring somebody into your home. And yet, Bar Kamsa is kicked out in front of the rabbis because somebody didn't take that great rabbinic statement about a small act seriously. When it comes to anava, when it comes to engaging into those aspects of leadership that are missing in this case, so we should have seen better from Schaib and Avkulis. And I think for this, he's excised. He's only present to teach us a lesson about a failure of leadership. And we find the rabbis are silent because the rabbis are silent for bin Also, they should have gone back. They were Sanhedrin, for God's sakes. They could have said something. They could have done something. They could have stepped in. I want to say something. Um, I, I, I'm going to take questions in a moment. And I, I saw a number of questions came in. I want to point out something uh, rather shocking, amazing, that I saw in, in a wonderful book by uh, Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein. Of NYU, Professor Rubinstein is uh, one of the great Talmud scholars of our day and age, focuses on Agadot. In his book, Talmudic Stories, Culture, uh, forgot the full title. Talmudic Stories, Jeffrey Rubinstein, you'll find it on Google, fantastic book. He, he issued it in a more popular version called Now the Land of Truth. Wonderful, wonderful book about his uh, doctoral work. So Professor Rubinstein points out that that story of Nero, remember when we, when we took that little uh, excurses, and, and we talked about Nero, who sees that he has the divine imprimatur for destroying the temple, he shoots the arrows, they miraculously all fall in the direction of Jerusalem. Nero goes ahead and says, that's not enough, I'm not satisfied, asks a child, an oracle, and he gets a pasuk, and he still says, actually, I'm going to do something decisive, I'm going to run off. He says, it's, it's deliberate. It's deliberate that the rabbis put this story of, of a, a pagan emperor, an, a, an erstwhile destroyer, plunderer of Jerusalem, who does the right thing. That if you read the Gemara carefully, it's actually being thrown in relief to the failure of Shari ben Kulas and the rabbis. It's being thrown as in relief to show us this is what decisive action looks like. Sure, Nero deliberates but at the end of the day, he says something decisive needs to be done. He converts to Judaism. Let somebody else do the destruction. Nero did the right thing. Why couldn't the rabbis do so in a case? I mean, this is intense criticism, intense implied criticism of what the rabbis are doing over here. And it's, and it's this kind of criticism because the results are so catastrophic, because the results are so disastrous. That's the insight of Rubinstein over here, and I think it's a, a wonderful one. We're not going to have enough time, but I do want to do one other quick show and tell. I, I did bring these uh, books. It's like I have five books with me in, uh, in the Benot Sheiru department, but this is another book, and um, I'll, I'll share the insights hopefully another time uh, by a, a educator, a principal in Israel uh, named Gil Pereg, and uh, it came out, and I saw it, and I had, to, I had to get it. It's called Tisha Korim B'Av, and he has these conversations with nine uh, important Cultural figures in uh, Israeli society, and uh, he has a conversation with Ehud Banai, with the famous uh, Israeli rock star Ehud Banai, and it's a recording of their um, it's a recording of their conversation on this particular Gemara, on this particular story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, and about what the point is, and uh, and and Ehud Banai has his own tremendous. Tremendous uh, insights on it. Uh, I'll just, uh, I'll share one with you. He says, Mipnei galinu we, re- we recite in musaf maybe we'll end with this. Mipnei galinu we recite this in, in musaf prayers. Because of our sins, we were kicked out of our land. Ehud Banai says, In modern Hebrew can also mean to miss a target is to miss, is to err. That it's not just because person said to themselves, now I'm going to sin. Now I'm going to do that which is forbidden. It's because they missed the mark. That's how it happens. A little a little error, a little mistake, just missing the mark can have massive, massive ramifications. What Banai says is that the hachta'am in the deviation that we saw over here is these little small mistakes that Rabbi Yochanan gestures to, so we understand that it was those small mistakes that taking in aggregate lead to tremendous catastrophe. And I think that if we hark back to Rabbi Yochanan's words, if we understand well what it means to conduct ourselves, not in fear, but in deliberation, with a pacha, tamid, with that little conscience that percolates up in our souls before we do anything before we especially when we interact with others especially when we open our mouths to speak especially when it's difficult if we conduct ourselves as a society as a community in that way hopefully we'll be able to rectify these small little these small little deviations from what is right and good and we'll be doing a massive massive benefit for ourselves because in that kind of a healthy community, that kind of a healthy society, that kind of a healthy Jewish people will hopefully be the one that merits to see the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash that was destroyed because of those failures. So I wanna thank you all for listening. Now, I, 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 we have a little bit time, uh, Rabbi Trencher or, or Michael, uh, do we have a little bit of time to look at the questions for me to, to go through? Yeah, we have, um, we have a couple of questions here. First, um, one comment about Sinachina, maybe to talk a little bit about the the, um, the definition uh, thought about maybe sinachina means that you get nothing out of Sina do you want to
0: uh, that's uh, fantastic that discuss, I,
1: but- it's it, here's here's one of the things um, this is a whole separate discussion Bracha uh, I see uh, I see you it's good to have uh, people from the Upper West Side here also um, make me feel uh, wistful and happy um, miss you guys a lot Uh, Nissan, I see you as well, Um, so thanks for being here. Uh, That's a great question. Now, I I said that when you're translating, all right, an important thing to, and this is a sheer, I'll get it another time. Walter Benjamin, a uh, great uh, interwar Jewish philosopher uh, and writer, says in his essay, The Task of the Translator, that in translating something is always lost, that all translation is interpretation. I think that the word chinam over here is one of a good a good example of an untranslatable word. And, and what you're doing is actually a drasha bracha. What you're doing is saying, Khina means you get nothing out of it, and that's excellent because nothing was gained out of this sinna. That's a perfect way. I, I introduced it as sinat khinam, that the way that we say it is baseless. The khinam, for nothing. Either one sheds light on a word that I think could be understood metonymically, a word that is soville, a word that, or a phrase, chinam, that can bear many interpretations, many translations. And and I think that um, uh, you also wrote, while Nero fiddles Rome Burns, it's it's true that in 66, 64 AD, Nero uh, probably head out headed out to destroy Jerusalem. This story probably took place at 67, um, I shouldn't say AD, I, I should say Common Era, 67 uh, Common Era because Vespasian laid siege to Jerusalem for three years, and Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed in 70 CE. Um, and, and by the way, the beginning of Nero's downfall was that many Romans had placed bl- blame for the Great Fire of Rome um, on, on Nero, uh, led to his uh, his demise, his great his demise great ign- 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 and great ignominy. And I hope I pronounced that right. And, uh, and I, I, that's the phrase, while Nero fiddles Rome Burns, Nero was considered uh, something his biographers do seem in agreement upon is that he was especially vain. I see also that the bad guys are the rabbis that didn't step in. Yes, Judith and, and Matt, we, uh, we talked about that. Uh, Bracha also, the Jewish community is responsible that felt at ease with doing all these terrible things without recourse. Absolutely. The bystander effect and the diffusion responsibility itself is a root cause. Maybe the rabbis were worried the yeshiva would get cut off from funds. <laughs> you know, I, we laugh. It's funny, but, but I, I do want to say, and I know I'm new here, but I do want to say that sometimes, and, and this is something, look, we're going to run out of time, but when I was reading the story, I also, it's important to get into the minds of Zechari ben Avkulis. He wasn't a nobody. He was a great rabbi. He was responsible, it seems, for the administration of the sacrifices in the temple. Scheirben of Kulas must have known, or must have thought that he knew what he was doing, and that's a really important thing to remember: is that even when people do things that turn out really bad, sometimes we can ask them and we could say, "Well, what were you thinking?" They could give us very good rationale. (laughs) Scheirben of Kulas might say, "And I'll just, I'll give a little taste on this because uh, Joseph, I I don't see you, but this is even if it might have been a joke, it's actually a really important point. Sometimes people would say Scheirben of Kulas is so concerned about the halacha." He's probably thinking to himself, now, this isn't going to lead to the destruction of the temple. This can't lead to the wholesale uh, destruction. This couldn't be. But I do know that the temple will still be around and, and we need standards. Or you might even hear a more fundamentalist approach that said, if, if we lower our standards in the temple, then, what, then what's the, what good is it having a temple in the first place? Can you imagine somebody saying something like that? I could, I could easily imagine somebody saying something like that. Let's throw out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe that's what Schair of coolest. Who knows? Maybe we're going to lose funds. Maybe we're maybe we're not going to be able to continue in the future. So we're going to take this hit right now. We won't. We won't bring that that sacrifice. It's not so funny, really. Uh, once you think about it like that. So somebody would like to register a reservation about the translation of a nava as cowardice, lack of innovation, halakha. One could argue by the same token, it was courageous to resist the temptation of pander, tinker, halach in the face of pressure. David, I, 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 I'm not going to say names. I don't know if people want to be uh, uh, anonymous or not. That's a really solid point. I think that's what I'm saying is that uh, I, I think for sure, uh, for sure, schayev bin of kulis is being taken to task, and anava, which means humility, a positive trait, is being rendered as a cowardice because that's exactly what what it what it seems like in sum total, right? That. This and it's being paralleled directly. In fact, the Gemara in Yerushalmi tells us in a in a different recension of this story, Yerushalmi tells us that Chayyim ben of Kulis was actually one of the rabbis present at the meal. The Bavli spares that from the narrative, but in Yerushalmi it says that Chayyim ben of Kulis was actually there, right? And 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 I would say that perhaps Chayyim ben of Kulis is person a man of principle. The another I'm I'm the one to change halacha. I'm the one to act beyond the. The, the, the regularly prescribed halachic practice over here, I couldn't. That would be a, a betrayal of my integrity as the steward of the temple. One can imagine him saying such a thing. It's undeniable that that was the wrong approach over here, but, but it's something that we can respect nonetheless. Anyway, uh, is there a connection between mefahe, being concerned about the butterfly effect and a call to take bold action? Wouldn't we get stuck in a state of paralysis? Hmm. That's a, it's an excellent question. You're right. So I, I think that's why we have the coda. What's the What's the falling into bad in the coda in the, in the second part of that pasuk? Of course, I need to be fearful. Of course, I need to be considerate. But I think that anybody that's undertaken a big decision and written out the pros and cons and been deliberate about it, not impetuous or impulsive, and then taken action at the end so at least you can say, I, I thought about this, I gave it its due diligence, and now I'm going to act and do something decisive. In this story, we find no decisive action whatsoever. We find literally this bystander wallflower effect both at the party and at the temple, right? So when you have those two polarities, decisive action, and on the other hand, being very careful, when you when you bring them into dialogue, so then that's where I think that you find strategic thinking. That's where I think that you find, and and, and I don't think anybody would would be taken to task for thinking in that strategic manner. That is, um, and one last one, and, and, and uh, we're going to end just on time. Another is cowardice, lack of innovation, halacha. One might, by the same token, resist the temptation. Yeah, this is, I love that people are bringing out this point. One might be, by the same token, resist the temptation to pander or tamper with halakha in the face of pressure. I think that perhaps that this might have been the thinking of S'chayi of Avkulas. I think that this is probably, I'm not going to tamper with this. I'm not going to mess with this. It's his anava that causes him to think that way. Who am I to do such a thing? I'm not big enough. And yet, he's the person that's, his decisions go unopposed in the temple. Surely, if anybody was to go and to say, okay, no longer time to be maktin rosh, time to do something, time to think globally, it would have been Zchari of Kulis as well. Which is why ultimately he's the one taken to task. So uh, we ended with the questions and not the really nice uh, bracha and coda that I gave, you know, the classic, but, uh, but I do truly hope and I do truly uh, believe that uh, a community and society, and from what I've seen, we are certainly that community that conducts ourselves in this kind of a, in this kind of a way, that we're going to be uh, we're going to be part of the community as part of the Jewish people that witnesses a rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the temple that starts with the rebuilding of personal relationships and interactions between people. And um, and I'm gonna be happy and honored to be a part of it. And uh, I wanna thank you all for coming to learn with me. I want to thank Rabbi Trencher and um, and uh, Mr. Feldstein, again, for everything that they do. And, uh, and I want to wish everybody a uh, wonderful Shabbat. Uh, two days in advance isn't a problem. It's Wednesday. We said L'Chun Eranana today. And looking forward to so much learning in the future, both with your kids, uh, the kids of this community, and, and with you as well. Thank you so much.